Okay, we did it. We did it. Kanjab, here we are. <laughs> I told you, always tech challenges with me. Always tech challenges. Sorry. <laughs> it is, you know what, the miracles of the world. You're in New Orleans, I'm in Chicago, and we are having this conversation somehow on the internet with all of our nearest and dearest. So you know what, like, it boggles the mind, truly. <laughs> truly. Glad we made it. Yes, we made it. We did it. We did it. Oh, my goodness. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. It's like maybe showing signs of spring here in New Orleans, which I really appreciate. For most of the country, we haven't really had winter, but for us, it's been very cold. You yes. know, yes. 40s. You are going to flee. Well, and I have to say it is cutting to be spring because also it is going to be Mardi Gras in just three weeks, three short weeks, right? And so I feel like I have learned so much about Mardi Gras and king cakes from you. And so we won't really tap into that expertise today, but it's deep. So for the people to know out there, it is very deep. <laughs> um, there is definitely a, a skill in identifying and finding the best king cakes in New Orleans. And yes. I think I've done that pretty well. You know what? I really, I, we're going to have to, you know, I, we'll have to chat offline because my kids and I are busy trying them. I picked one up at Target yesterday in Wicker Park in Chicago, which we have tried that kind before. It is Gambino, so it's from New Orleans. So it's pre-iced, which they don't always come pre-iced when you get them FedEx, but you know, whatever. Um, I mean, yes, let me so, it yeah, I, we, we, we rate them. Generally, the more icing, the higher the rating. There is definitely a correlation with the kids. <laughs> this is perhaps a concern with my parenting abilities because then it's like just sure craziness. But anyway, um, good. Well, I am so glad to welcome you to our, my second live on leadership. Um, and for those of you out there in the internet world or who are listening later on the replay or on the podcast, my name is Beth Napleton and I have been an educator for over 20 years and currently work as a coach and consultant to leaders who are looking for the time, tool, space, and skill sets to really, I find, help get their people together so that that way their organization can get to uh, their mission and their goals. So I am excited in my many, many year journey in leadership to talk to some of the people who I have honestly like grown up with. And I feel like Kunjan, you qualify in that um, area because we met in 2003. I was trying to remember it was 2002, 2003, but it must have been 2003 because we were both 2000 Teach for America core members, did not know each other. Um, but when I moved to rural North Carolina to teach at Kip Gaston, Gaston College Prep, you had recently become a program director and were had core members at my school. Um, and that is where the journey began it's almost true. 20 years ago. <laughs> it's hard to believe it was that long ago, but yes, 20 years ago. I know. We thought we were very adult and we took ourselves very seriously. And I I was not 25 when I moved there. Neither were you. We were both 24. So <laughs> yes, we did take ourselves very seriously. And that theme is going to appear in the later on in this conversation. <laughs> we take ourselves so seriously. <laughs> Why did we take ourselves so seriously? So yeah, so country and I really became friends because here I was, I moved to North Carolina. I didn't know anyone there. I was teaching at the school that I was like super committed to. You had several core members there and had taught with one of my, one the people who quickly became my very good friend, Keith Burnham at Githens Middle School in Durham, right? Giffins. I had been thinking about this. I'm like, what was Giffins? Giffins. I'm like, oh, it was Giffins. I have it. <laughs> yes, it was Giffins Middle School. That's right. And so we just, all, all the good times started there. And I feel like I'd be remiss if I did not mention that I think your first business trip was to my house. I mean, it wasn't to my house. It was to Northampton County. And then you would pack your little suitcase and rather than like drive two hours from Durham, drive back, drive back the next day, you would stay for a couple of days and you'd stay on my couch. And I feel like that is where the magic was born. Is yeah. that, is that, I don't, was that your first business trip? Maybe? That, that Besides, was, I'm boring. 
my first business trip. And um, again, I took myself very seriously, packed my little suitcase. And instead of staying at a hotel in Northampton County, I just stayed on your couch. <laughs> and it was awesome. It was so great. It was so great. I feel like that was it. And, and unfortunately, the first house I lived in was not very well heated. <laughs> so Kunjan really felt the effect of that deeply. <laughs> so no, I know. And actually, you gave me a robe back then. You it was like a really warm robe. You were like, this will keep you warm in my house. And uh, I still have it. It still keeps me warm in my house. <laughs> and you have since hosted me. I mean, I like the last trip I took was to visit you in New Orleans just a few weeks ago, which was a much nicer house and the heat worked really accurately. So that is like how far we've come. <laughs> so yes, perhaps a few more uh, gray hairs, but we had a good time. So yeah. But you've had a really interesting journey since then. Um, I'll kind of give a few highlights, if that's okay. And before we kind of dive into talking about leadership. So after working at Teach for America as a program director in North Carolina, you then moved home to Chicago, which is where you grew up and where I grew up also. We just didn't know each other then either. Although I did have a friend from high school who went to college with you, which yeah. we figured out once when I was blow during my hair at your house after a okay. wild night out in Durham. And I was like, is that true, T? <laughs> <laughs> right. I feel like we have many other connections in life that have sort of illuminated themselves since um, since we've gotten to know each other. This is very, it was very Dustin. But before we you moved back to Chicago, we thought very seriously about taking a trip around the world. And we had this whole map and stars and we were gonna take a year off. But Kunjan, would you like to tell the good people why we did not actually take this trip around the world? <laughs> because we had already like a start with Australia, go to Asia, we'd end up in Europe because we figured we kind of broke by then. So we could just like see how long we could last. Like, but why yeah. didn't we take a once in a lifetime trip around the world? <laughs> with the theme that has already emerged because we took ourselves way too seriously <laughs> way too seriously we thought we have to work i mean you know we have to work there are kids they need to be educated we've got to work yeah this this at the time we called it the achievement gap perhaps now it's more popularly known as the opportunity gap but this will not solve itself and we we cannot take a year off of working and i mean there was a part of like i was like i really enjoy working and so yeah. like i actually really enjoy traveling for a year so like that is probably to unpack with a professional therapist yeah. but like, yeah well, I think we can, we can revive this idea. I have faith that in the future we can find a way to actually make that trip happen. Yes. But at the time we were saying things like, well, I spend $80 a month on my electricity and that will pay for a hostel for like five nights in Thailand. And I no longer am in the, that is how I'm going to spend five nights in Thailand category of my life. So <laughs> it'll be a better trip. The trip that we actually take will be better than the one we planned. Way better, way better. We might be older, but we'll bring our wisdom to it. So yeah. <laughs> So we were going to do that, but you moved back to Chicago and you worked here for a number of years. And that's actually, I think, where you first hooked up with John White, right? And so John was at the ED in Chicago and you worked with him closely, um, which will come on to play later, listeners. And so that really exciting to kind of have that. And then you worked your way up at TFA. You were there for like 10 years? Eight. I was there for eight years. Eight years. And program director, managed the region, managed the program, did all the stuff. Yeah, totally. I mean, it was a great experience. I learned so much. I've met great people. And um, uh, I left there in about 2011. And my last job there was uh, the vice president of regional program. So I was supporting regions across the country. And when you left there, you were like, I feel like I need to go explore different opportunities. I worked at this one nonprofit, like, let me try government, let me try foundation work, let me try different regions of the country. And you were going on this grand tour, and you had it all set up, and you made it exactly one stop. <laughs> That's right. I had um, I had really great ambitions of just sort of exploring education um, across the country in different kinds of organizations, and ultimately, I just stayed in my first um, my first uh, consulting job, and I ended up being there for a long time. Right, which was amazing. Right, I mean, so that was when you were working. Was that when 
you went to New Orleans or did was that already at the Louisiana Department of Education? Yeah, no, I went to New Orleans. I started consulting at the Recovery School District. Um, I had a three-month project and um, I was ready to move on to other places after those three months. Um, and it turns out that uh, I ended up just staying. I started as the chief of staff at the Recovery School District in New Orleans and went on to um, be the COO. I went on to be the chief of staff and COO at the Louisiana Department of Ed um, and ultimately ran all of school improvement for the state and um, ran the New Orleans school system for some period of time. And that happened all in the span of about nine years. And I feel, again, so, so lucky. Um, I learned a ton. I have great memories. I feel like the work we've done has had an impact that's measurable by um, outside standards. And uh, we just had a great, great team that I loved and still well, love. Also, I feel like we're going to dive into all these rich experiences, but I feel like it's important for people to understand that we have been very good friends for a long time, right? And like every time you're home in Chicago, we see each other, we go out, et cetera. It took me reading my Teach for America One Day magazine when it was quoting Kunja Narachania, the CEO of the Recovery School District, for me to be like, wait a second. <laughs> like, Kunja, when did you start running the New Orleans Recovery School District? Like you miss this. Like you're so modest. Like it's, it's one of the things that I, I love about you. makes us such good friends. But I feel like I'm going to really learn a lot about your leadership experience here because you're like, oh, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, again, I just feel so lucky for the experiences that I've had. And um, I've, I just feel like I've learned so, so much. I, I, you know, people are like, how did you end up where you ended up? Honestly, I ended up where I ended up by some stroke of luck. You know, I know John, I'd met John, I knew he was coming to Louisiana. And um, I decided to come give it a try and just took a leap of faith and stayed and just was able to, um, um, find myself moving from position to position and um, learning just just so much from that that time. Well, you guys did a remarkable job in Louisiana. And one of my favorite experiences from my like fairly recently launched consulting gig was when um, I was talking to a potential client about kind of improving uh, systems, right? And how do you improve state education agencies? How do you think about rebuilding after COVID? And they're like, well, here's an example of what we're looking for. Here's a case study. And I was like, this is Louisiana Department of Education. Like that's John, that's Kunjan, that's like, I mean, all your crew that you've been working with, right? Rebecca and Hannah. And it was like, wow, that's amazing. So I think it's really exciting. And of course, now you are working with a lot of those same players at Watershed Advisors. And so what are you doing a little at Watershed Advisors? Because I think that's kind of a neat, um, like, in some ways, like a really just, I, it's a really interesting evolution from education, but also still including it. So I think it'd be great to hear about that. Yeah. Um, uh, so several of us who worked together at the Department of Ed decided that we were going to go into business together. Um, we formed a small company called Watershed Advisors, and um, we partner with philanthropies, state governments, um, state education agencies to scale good ideas for kids. We'll talk about this a little bit later, but scaling good ideas in education is really, really hard given how our country governs education. Mm -hmm. And we feel like in um, our work at the Louisiana Department of Ed, we found ways through government to scale um, things that matter for kids, scale mm -hmm. high quality access to early learning, high quality access to high quality curriculum, access to high quality training for teachers. You know, we didn't do that in one district or two districts. We did that in every district in the mm -hmm. state. And um, that is the kind of work we seek to do with uh, the partners that we work with at Watershed. 
Well, and I think it's really neat because you're able to take that work on scaling and then like from what, you know, to to talk about like, per, like uh, the preparing high school graduates for careers, like increasing opportunities, right? Like there's just like all, all these pieces that we together to help make our cities and states healthy places for people to live and thrive and have successful lives. So I think that's pretty neat. Well, let's throw it back for a second, if it's okay, and talk about the 2003 leadership era when we were kind of early in the journey, right? And so when you look back now and you think about kind of that point in time, um, you know, what did you take from that? Like, what were you really learning and figuring out then? Well, I think, you know, what I was doing was trying to make teachers better. My job was to work with, you know, 30 some teachers and figure out how to get them to be better at their job so that kids learn more. And that's what I woke up and thought about every day. How do I get more kids to learn more in rural North Carolina? Um, but I think that's different than what I took away from that experience. And you know, what I took away is that the complexity of teaching is just infinite. I mean, I watched so many teachers over the course of my time in, in Louisiana. And um, with every observation, I would just be struck by the complexity of managing a group of students who all have such individual needs and um, who you're trying to sort of move from one place in their academic career to the next. It's just such a daunting task. I'm not telling anyone anything they don't know, but it really just sat with me. Mm -hmm. I think connected to that is the point that I was making earlier, which is like, given the unique nature of every classroom and every school, given the unique nature of every district, given that every district in America is governed by one unique elected board, how do you actually make change? Mm -hmm. Like, how do you, across the country or across a state, get the experience of a teacher and a kid to be such that that kid leaves the classroom learning way more than they did when they started? And I was really struck as I drove around rural North Carolina through the cotton fields, like, how can we make that happen in this country, just mm -hmm. given how we are structured? And those ideas have just sat with me through the sort of entirety of my career. Um, and, you know, I don't know that I fully understood those ideas at the age of 23, but when I look back, I think those are the biggest takeaways that I had. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's interesting because I think a lot of the work you did at the Department of Education, because part of, I mean, so wait, so a couple of thoughts. So one is that also like we're talking about how do we make change and you and I are very much um, urgent and about like doing better for kids now but like i actually don't know that like the system is like that or that people are like that and there are plenty of people who are kind of just fine with things the way they are right despite the fact that right like plenty of kids leave school and can't read <laughs> or like get a career that like can you know um earn them a living wage with their family and so i wonder if that's something that you dealt with particularly as you went to work in state agencies and politics which is like kind of satisfaction with the status quo and and and, and i can actually think of a few examples where you saw it at the time as well, right? Like teachers were like, my classroom is fine or I'm so much better than this person on the street. And could you be like, it is not fine. <laughs> like you are, and you were always really good at being direct. Like you are failing kids. And so we're going to get you together and you are going to go in there and do better tomorrow. Um, but I wonder, like we talk about kind of how do you make this change? But it's interesting because it almost assumes to you want to make change. And I'm curious, like you've gone from that fairly granular level of like, I'm in the back of a classroom supporting a teacher to this giant, you know, 100,000 square foot view, like where, where does that kind of come into play? Yeah, I mean, look, we all in all of our jobs, I think, face um, people or institutions that are unwilling or unready to change. Mm -hmm. And I think the question in every one of those circumstances for me is sort of uh, how do you paint a common vision that people can get behind? 
And how do you illuminate the common problem that people can get behind? Mm -hmm. And, you know, so often in our work in Louisiana, we would just start by illuminating the problem. Mm-hmm. And for example, um, you know, we were changing the funding formula for how kids were kids with special needs were funded um, in New Orleans. And the the problem was that kids with special needs, with the most severe special needs, were funded at the same rate as mm-hmm. had no special needs. Now look, most parents are probably gonna be like, I don't much care about the funding formula, I'm sure it's fine, until you illuminate the problem and the mm-hmm is so so sort of stark when you say a kid whose education costs $100,000 is being funded at $9,000 and a kid whose education costs $9,000 is being funded at $9,000, right? Like that is a problem that people can understand. And over and over again, we just tried to illuminate the problem within the system that was preventing Mm. individual kids or groups of kids from achieving their potential. Hmm. I love that. I love illuminate the problem. I mean, I don't love, it's like not fun to spend time in the problem, but it really gets people motivated to find the solution, right? Or to act on this or to vote a certain way or whatever the case might've been. So. Yeah. And look, like we changed that funding formula. We had two hours of testimony from parents who said, I believe that the funding formula should change. Now I have never seen a group of parents talk about funding formulas before. Right. Right. But what we did was say to people like, this can change the quality of education that your child receives. And here is how it can do that. And people showed up in droves to talk about that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, parents want better for their kids. And so this, mm-hmm. the system has to respond um, to what the demands of the parents are. And oftentimes we don't, we don't even know, we don't even understand what parents want or sort of what their demands are. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, bottom line is I'm sort of meandering, but like I think the 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 key around sort of um, helping people figure out that change is absolutely necessary is to just start by saying, well, let's just talk about what the problem is. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Um, so what are other, so I, I understand the problem. What are some other kind of impactful leadership lessons you've learned along the way? Um I mean, I think I probably have many, so many. Um, I've made many, on, sister. Let's go. <laughs> many mistakes in my time. Um, I think one of the one of the most important things I feel like I've learned is hard problems don't have a right answer. Mm. Um, hard problems are hard. They're just hard. Your the problems you face, the problems you know that the folks in Missouri face versus the folks in Louisiana versus the folks in Texas are they're different. They're different. They have commonalities, but they're different. The people involved in solving the problem are different. The organizations are different. You know, the context is different. Culture is different. And um, I used to always think, well, well, someone has an answer. Like my boss has an answer, or somebody smarter than me has an answer, or somebody who's done this before has an answer. Well, I, I realized like. That's just not true. Nobody has an answer. And I think that leads me, I think, probably to the second lesson I learned, which was, again, seems obvious, but I had to learn it, which is, you know, the team you have is the most important sort of um, part of figuring out how to solve a problem. Mm. And and you've got to be really committed to the people and you've got to be really committed to the common cause you have in order to figure out how to solve that hard problem. Mm-hmm. And um, I think those are difficult things. Like, you know, you um, 
like I have come to really, really believe that the people around me are the ones that help. Well, I, I guess I'll say like the, I'll say that none of the problems that we've addressed would be solved without the people around me. Like it just wouldn't have happened. And um, I sort of mean that with deep, deep love and respect for those people. Like we didn't always agree. We didn't always sort of see things the same, but we always had each other's back. We always agreed that we had to solve the problem and we always figured out how to do it together. Mm -hmm. And I think when there are really, really tough decisions in front of you, you know, like, are you going to support the common core learning standards when your governor no longer does and is threatening to take your job? Like, are you going to stand by the people who you have committed to do this work with? Mm. Are you commit to the cause? And we were faced with that kind of challenge all the time. And that sort of ultimately taught me that like, there's no world in which I alone, you know, my mm. 23 year old self who took myself so seriously is ever going to be able to tackle the problems that exist in this country. Um, and you've got to really commit to the people and collectively commit to the cause. I think those are two big ones. Uh, the last one um, is just a personal one, I think. It's just a lesson that I sort of keep with me um, just in my daily life. Um, people also often quote Gandhi as saying, be the change you want to see in the world. My, I think a different phrasing of that um, that I think aligns with um, what I what I believe Gandhi's intention was is let the change begin with you. Mm. And I just think over and over again, anytime I see something on my team or something in the in the organization that I'm leading or in the project that I'm working on that doesn't doesn't jive with how I think things should be going, the instinct is I have is to start with me. Like what am mm. I doing that is allowing this to not go the way that I think it should? What what do I mm -hmm. need? And that has been a hard lesson to learn, but one that has paid dividends, I think. So mm. those are those are three. I could keep going, but Those's I'll great ones. Well, and it reminds me of something that Tammy Sutton, who I think taught us both a lot back in our North Carolina days as the co-founder of Gaston College Prep, is like, you know, point with a thumb, right? Like if you're pointing to yourself, like what's my role? What am I doing? Like she used to always tell our students, like when you point with a finger, three come back to you. Right. Yeah. And I see that and I see that a lot with leaders. I reflecting on a leadership situation in my own life the other day. And it's like, if you keep blaming other people, you are not going to get anywhere. And like, there's, you know, like, what, what can you do? Let the change begin with you. Point with a thumb. I think that really um, is there. Well, we'll get back to the people issue too, because I think that that's something that you have really kind of become known for. And so I want to kind of dig into a little bit more of that because I think that's a part of it. But I first wonder, is there anything that used to work for you in leadership that kind of doesn't quite work for you anymore, right? I mean, because I think that I work a lot with leaders who are evolving, right? Who like maybe got promoted to the next level up or kind of, you know, took over the ED job and are like, okay, I can do the stuff I did when I was a VP. And so I always like to hear like, you know, and sometimes those tools grow with us, right? And it's like, I'm still using the same tool. And other times it's like, no, no, no I have to put this tool aside because this actually does not work at this level anymore. And I would be curious if there were some uh, tools in your leadership arsenal that you had to maybe put out to pasture a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, lots actually. Let me tell me, girl. I think um, you've heard this already, but I, you know, I used to believe, and I'm not proud of it. And I, I that I could just get it done if I just mm. sort of 
steamrolled everyone. And I don't mean that in like a, I was rude or disrespectful to people. It was just like, if I was going to get something done, I was just going to get it done. Mm -hmm. And people were just going to come with me or they weren't. That's just how it was going to be. Um, that got me um, a few successes. Mm -hmm. but ultimately, in the long run, didn't serve me at all. Mm -hmm. um, I hadn't invested people in a vision. I hadn't sort of built that vision with people. I hadn't engaged them in the plan or strategy to achieve the vision. We hadn't mm -hmm. solved problems together. You know, the things that you do when a team really gels and figures out, you know, how to work together um, to really get stuff done. I'd done none of that. Mm -hmm. um, and so sure, like someone was proud of me because I got this event done or I really did a great training for teachers, but who cares? Like, it's all short lived if you don't actually build a team that can mm -hmm. carry a, a vision past the one event or the one training. And um, I had to, it took me too long to put away that uh, sensibility, but um, I eventually did. And I think it's, it's I, I clearly am, understand my downfalls. Well, it's interesting because I think that it, um, in some ways, I wonder if that's also part of the curve going from someone who is an individual contributor, you're in charge of your classroom or your core members to being a leader and a manager of others, right? And so it's different when you have to get a team of program directors to execute a great event, like when it was just you and the team, but you you really do have to. And I think, honestly, the point you're mentioning is often a pain point for people, right? Like if I just work harder, if I just do this, but it's like, it becomes a Sisyphean feat and it is learning that different skill set of painting the picture of the vision, investing people, hearing out their concerns, right? Like incorporating their ideas, right? But also supporting people through it. So I think that is, I don't think you're alone in that. Um, yeah. At all. Yeah. And look, I, I see it in other people all the time. And um it's hard to watch it in other people, but I empathize and I understand because I've been there too. And it served me well for a minute. And and for whatever reason, like those ideas were a part of a narrative that I had built about what it took to be successful. Like mm -hmm, I, mm -hmm. harder, I just need to do X, Y, and Z. If I did that meeting better, if I had done blah, blah, blah. And like, again, you, you see the trend here. It's like about I, it's about me. It's about sort of like a focus on self and not a focus on what is the problem that needs to be solved? Who can help solve the problem? And how do I sort of organize people in pursuit of the solution to that problem. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, and as you think about like, I guess like, as we start talking about like not only managing a team, but kind of, and also like managing through layers, managing these complex organizations, leading these complex places, let's kind of zoom, you know, in on this focus area of leading large systems. Like, what do you think, you know, what do you, what do you focus on? How do you do that? I mean, I don't know how many people at the Louisiana Department of Education, but a lot a lot work there, <laughs> right? A lot. Yeah. And a lot of people who work there before you got there and who will work there after you leave. Absolutely. And you know that even if you have the longest tenure, right? And so how do you kind of work in these large systems? You know, do you focus on fewer things and doing them well? Do you focus on communication? Do you do both? Like, you know, I guess like, I'd love to hear kind of your lessons about leading in large systems. Yeah. Um, I don't know if this exactly answers your question, Beth, but you know, the one thing that we tried to do was to just be very clear about the change we were seeking to make at the mm -hmm. kid and classroom level. Like, what is the thing that needs to be different in Louisiana classrooms? So let me just give you a couple examples. So one, um, one thing we wanted to be different was we would go to classrooms and see, and you'll, you'll relate to this as a reading teacher, um, we'd see kids reading short passages from worksheets. 
mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. answering multiple choice questions. Like we all know that's not the way kids should learn to read. And that's not the way kids will learn comprehension. It's not how they'll build knowledge of the world. It's just not. And we would walk into fourth and fifth grade classrooms where this is what we saw when kids really should have been reading novels and sort of finding ways to relate to the novel and process what they were reading, you know, just like all the things we know about good um, reading and uh, English instruction. And so we, we said, look, like we have to change this. This cannot be the thing that kids in Louisiana go to school and do all day long. We want to see more kids engaging with authentic text. And that means we need to see kids engaging with high quality curriculum because high quality curricula in our country does do that. It engage, engages kids in authentic text um, that helps them build knowledge, increase their ability to comprehend, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you know more than I. Um, I this is like, it's been a long time since someone thought, like referenced me as a reading teacher. So it really is warming my heart right now. Yeah, like, that, that, I mean, that's how I spent many years early in my career. And yes, I love it. That's how I know you originally. Um, <laughs> and uh, you but know, I was not using a high quality curriculum. I was making shit up, which is very risky. I can yeah. tell you as a school leader. <laughs> well, well, you were very good at it regardless. But, um, you know, I think with that vision, with that sense of like, this is the change we need to see in the classroom. What, how do we do that? Like, what are the mm-hmm. levers we have to pull to make that happen at a classroom level? We have to convince districts. We have to find money. We have to um, elevate uh, examples of success. You know, there's so many things that we can do to make that change. And so what we ended up doing was um, focusing in on uh, the 500 most challenged schools in the state. Uh, And again, we illuminated the problem for people. We said, look, these are places that are really, really struggling. They've been historically struggling for a long time. We want to help them. And the thing we're going to do to help them is to give them grant money for Um, evidence-based improvement strategies, things that have been researched and um, have been proven to work for kids. And one of those things is better curriculum in reading and in math and better training for teachers on that curriculum. Mm -hmm. You do that. If you decide as a district, you're going to do that in these 500 lowest performing schools, guess what? We're going to give you a bunch of money to go do it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And guess what? We got basically at all districts except for one to make that change in a two-year time period. We then, you don't stop there, right? Because just because a district buys the curriculum does doesn't not mean that it's being, yes, implemented effectively. Lord, if it only were that easy, but sadly it's not. Yes. Anyway, anyway go on. So then what did we do? We took all of our people who are district facing in the department who are focused on what goes on in districts and said to them, look, your job is to help the district get the uh, get teachers to start using this curriculum and then ultimately to use it effectively. And what did that mean we did? We did things like, check to make sure the district had bought the curriculum mm-hmm. Check to make sure that the boxes of curriculum got to the school. Yes. And they were unboxed. Like literally it's yes. Yes. <laughs> make sure the curriculum then made it into classrooms, mm-hmm. help get rid of old curricular materials. Mm-hmm. And then once the school, all that in the summertime. And then once the school year started, st- walked, walked school buildings with principals and yes. said, let's just see how this is playing out in your classrooms. We're not here to yell at anybody. We're not here to be the right. curriculum but we want to check and make sure and help you figure out how to support your teachers to ensure that kids are reading authentic text and responding to it in by speaking and writing. And that is what we had to do to get to that student level change. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but without the vision of exactly what you want to be different in the classroom, systems often 
are sort of grasping at straws or are pursuing strategies that ultimately will never have an impact in the classroom. They all kind of swirl up here and they don't kind of come down. And I think what's so interesting is that it also creates just a clear vision. Like we want to see kids talking about reading and interacting and debating authentic texts. And when you walked into classrooms, you could see it right away. Is it there or is it not? And so could the principal and so could the school leader and so could the instructional coach and the district person. And so I think that in some ways that's like, that's so clear. And obviously doing that can be complex, right? But like the clarity of vision helps untangle it. I don't know. Um, yeah. Or help weave the needle through that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let me give you another example. Kids in Louisiana were not applying for um, federal financial aid. They were not filling out the FAFSA. Mm-hmm. I mean, FAFSA completion rates were like nothing. And so we know, and I'm not saying like, well, let me just say, I, I think, you know, we said we need kids to be able to go to post-secondary. There's a lot of things around that. Like there's a lot of other levers that we can pull. And we pulled many levers. But yes. one of the ones that we pulled that were so clear was like, kids will fill out the FAFSA. Well, guess what? That gave us some clarity about what to ask principals to do, what to ask districts to do, what we needed to do. And again, if you say to people, here are the biggest problems, here are the places where kids are completing the FAFSA at the lowest rates, we are Mm going to help here, here's what we think you should do, and we're going to give you money to do it, and we're going to celebrate when you do do it, and help you get in the newspaper and sort of like give your district accolades, like ways to get people focused on the things that ultimately will have dramatic impact on kids' lives. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And it really created a focal point of what you're, you know, measuring and shining a light on, encouraging, celebrating. And I think you all did a really good job too of incentivizing. Like instead of coming at it with sticks, come at it with carrots, right? right. And like you like you'll win more bees with honey, right? Like how do you get people kind of moving along? And I think what starts to happen then is that you start to see like whatever XYZ districts being successful. It like just seems achievable. Your peers start to do it. You learn from each other. You create a community of learning. And so I think that's really interesting because sometimes people think, especially like for people like these weird ideas about leadership is like, and then we will come in with the consequences. And it's like, you know what? Like you, you can, but like what's actually going to be more effective is if you incentivize it and reward and like, don't focus on the 20% that are having a hissy fit in the corner. Like instead focus on the people who are doing the right thing and keep putting the attention there and, and they will kind of come along for the ride. So. Yeah. Yeah. I really agree with that. And we did, we always started with the early adopters, people who really mm-hmm. want to in early and you elevate their work and you sort of compel the rest of the state that like, well, this is just how it is. I mean, this is like, this is working guys. Like, why wouldn't we all do this? Um, and right. you know, ultimately the naysayers sort of stay naysayers or they come along. Um, yeah. but you've got to sort of build people's clarity, build early momentum and then reward good, good performance and good behavior. Mm-hmm. Totally. Well, we alluded to this earlier, but I feel like you're, and, and I don't know, like, look, this is kind of like my perspective is like your friend. And when I see you at like, you know, coffee or brunch or Mardi Gras, it's like, I feel like there are people you've just worked with for years, right? And for a long time. And even like, sometimes like, I don't think you work directly with Gabby anymore, but like, you're still always working collaboratively with Gabby because you worked with her for like 10 years, right? Like you just like have these people. And so you talked about that and talked about the importance of working in a team and having each other's back and being kind of committed to this cause. But I, you know, love to hear just like a little bit more because I think there are probably people listening thinking like, oh my God, I want that. Like, how, how do I build that? And I, you know, I, I am sure you have some ideas that would be really helpful to share. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know about that. I feel like I've found great people. Um, I've just found great people along the way. And, um, you know, my um, mentor and sort of like, work colleague, John, who you mentioned earlier, John White, we've worked together for a long time on and off. Um, I consider him to be just a really great 
uh, mentor and partner in work. And um, I felt very lucky to have been able to work with him. Um, and the team that we have at Watershed is our, our, you know, people that we've worked with in some instances for 15 years and some instances for 10 years. And um, it just feels great to to be among a trusted group of people um, to solve, you know, complicated problems in our country. I think that um, I don't know how to solve problems any other way than with great people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Just a, a thing that I've sort of come to believe at my core. And and that doesn't mean you have to find the perfect people. No one's perfect. Like, I've got plenty of flaws. People are annoyed with me about 10,000 things just today, you know? Like, <laughs> um, that's okay. You know, we, we find ways to persist past our idiosyncrasies and our, you know, individual whatever we've got to continue to solve problems for kids. And if you can keep doing that, if you can find people you can keep doing that with, then you should just keep doing that with them. Like, mm -hmm. why? You know, I'm not saying we don't want new people in our group. We absolutely want new people in our group. But we are going to continue to sort of be able to maximize um, our talents and our ability to impact kids in the country because we continue to work together, because we understand each other. We know each other's strengths. We know where we all need support. And um, we're willing to give that support. You know, we're willing to sort of take time, be inconvenienced, sort of like be challenged because of our commitment to each other and our commitment to our joint cause. Mm -hmm. And um, I, again, I just feel very, very lucky to have been able to find that kind of a community and to continue to grow that kind of a community. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, totally. It's interesting too, because even as you're talking, I'm flashing back to conversations that we probably had uh, like 15, 18 years ago about the talent challenges in education and talent pipelines or lack thereof. And what does this mean? I think you've always been very good at being able to like zoom out and see the bigger picture and be like, this is actually a crisis. And it's interesting because now we're in the middle of like the great recession and like there's the pandemic I think has like just brought a lot of, I mean, this is kind of how I feel about the pandemic in general is like wherever there were cracks before, those are like chasms now. Like it's not like talent issues in education are new. Yes. However, this pandemic, and I like, <laughs> this is true not just in this particular instance, but I wonder if there are any thoughts or reflections you have on like where we are in this particular moment in time when it comes to the talent, um, you know, cause I can also imagine people listening saying like, I would love that, but like, I haven't found that or this person left to go make more money someplace else or this person needed more flexibility in their jobs and these big jobs in education don't always permit that. And so I would love to hear any kind of thoughts or reflections you have on just like, Give them, I, we've talked about talent education for, I mean, I am sure we were talking about that on your business trip in 2000. <laughs> we definitely were. Table, we were like bemoaning the state of where this is and if only blah, blah, blah. Um, and here we are like 20 years later and we're still talking about it. <laughs> and I think in 20 more years, hopefully we'll be on our around the world trip somewhere, like yeah. <laughs> sipping a Mai Tai and also talking about it. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, think, yeah. I think leaders are in unenviable position right now where, you know, you've got, you know, the great the great resignation is just sort of like weighing down on anybody who's running a big system or running a big organization. Uh, again, I am not sort of in the grind on that. Like I'm not in the system right now. So I don't feel that on a daily basis. Um, but I do think, you know, when I talk to folks in education, they're always looking for new, like different people. They're like, well, if we just had different people, if we just had like, you know, teachers who came from such and such background, or if we had leaders that had done such and such, well, those people just aren't there, you know, yeah. like look at who you have in front of you and figure out how to elevate people who, who are in your midst 
and give them the responsibility um, that you that they never thought they could handle or that you never thought that they could handle. Give people who have um, an eagerness and a willingness that kind of responsibility and give them the room to run. And I think you'd be surprised. I also think like, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. Um, uh, well, I lost my train of thought, so I just will leave that alone. But I, um, <laughs> sorry, this happens when you get old. Um, hey, you don't tell me, girl. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I think like who is in front of you? And oh, yeah, actually, let me just say one other thing. I um, I think that we spend too much time thinking about what our people cannot do. Like they're mm. not ready for this. They're not ready for that. And not enough time thinking about what are they ready for? And how do you give them the platform they need to go run and do that thing? And that's the thing that I think I've been given that I hope I can give to other people, which is responsibility I never thought I could handle, the freedom to go pursue that responsibility and get results, and the support that I needed from people around me to like feel okay if I stumbled, made mistakes, and just didn't totally get it right. And in leadership positions, I think that's what we can offer to our people. And um, I don't have a solution to the great resignation, but I do just think uh, wishing for different people isn't really going to work. Yeah. And there's no silver bullet, right? I think sometimes like, it's always like, what's the thing? And it's like, I mean, I hear you talking a lot about the importance of growing and developing your people about using an asset based lens. Yes. And, and it's kind of giving me chills because I'm thinking back 20 years to like some core members you worked with who I think looking at them on paper or looking at some of the statistics, people would have written off. They were a hot mess. They were like fired from their previous schools. And like people went on to found multiple schools, <laughs> right? Win yeah. national teaching awards, like, you know, like literally changed the algebra attainment rate of an entire county. I mean, it's crazy. And it's like, I think in some ways it's like, great. So what can we work with here? Right. You're really, you really can motivate the heck out of people. So how do we really use this to help motivate your kids to do math? Like you're really methodical. How do we help you use that to attack and, and challenge this and, and break this down? And so I think that it kind of gives me chills because I think in a lot of ways, like what now you're doing on such a large scale, like helping cities and states. Like I, you know, you were really doing it. Like I would say at the Starbucks, but there was no Starbucks in Northampton County in 2003. So <laughs> that came later. There was one in like 2012, like after I left or, or no, yeah, no, I'm sorry. 2007, it was right before I left. And it was like, well, we have a Starbucks now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. like the and big now time. it's fun to go back and visit because I see like former students there with like their children and families. And then I feel very, very old. So yeah, yeah, that's that. Awesome. Um, well, any other advice? You know, you work, you've worked in these large organizations, right? And diverse populations, diverse interests, diverse experiences, right? State agencies, local governments, large nonprofits, like any advice for leaders who currently lead in that environment or who want to lead in that kind of environment? I think it's a really hard, it's just, look, this is a really hard moment to be leading in public education. Yes. The yes. pandemic, yes. Um, the culture wars, the sort of issues of critical race theory and whatnot. These are all, you know, so much of this is distraction from what's really real. And what's mm -hmm. really real is, are you influencing the interaction between a kid and a teacher? Mm -hmm. And are you helping set that kid up for their next step after they leave high school? Like those, those are real problems. And right now our politics are, are distracting and um, are really preventing education leaders from focusing on the things that matter most. So more than anything, I would say, find ways to focus on the things that really materially matter to children. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, are they authentic text and writing and debating? Are they doing math problems that are complicated and being asked to sort of um, explain their rationale for how they solved it? 
are they writing in a sophisticated manner? Are they able to express opinions and support them? You know, like focus on those things and figure out how your system can support children to do that because none of that is different. You know, that, that that's, mm -hmm. those are the same problems we've had and we need to continue yeah. to work to solve those problems. Um, regardless of what our politicians are talking about. And I wish they were talking about different things at this moment. Right, 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 right. But that's, I think that's also so true. And I also hear a lot from leaders who sometimes feel like, hey, when I went into teaching or I went into education, I like loved it and I felt like I was making this difference, but now I'm like 17 levels up and it's like, how? So there's also another benefit by focusing on that. And not only is it the real work, it also is like, this is why you do it in the first place, right? And so how do I actually like really like lean into this? And that can actually feed you as a leader through this very challenging time, right? Look, I was, I was like an assistant superintendent at the state. And what did I do? I spent my time looking at data about which classrooms had kids reading authentic text mm. and going to visit those classrooms, right? Like the, the thing that drove me was like, what is the evidence we have that classrooms are changing mm. and need to do differently to make that classroom change? Mm -hmm. And without that kind of anchor around which to organize myself, I just don't know that I would have stayed in that job. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. Because I feel like there's probably a lot of things you could do as the assistant superintendent for school improvement yeah. that are just feel like bureaucracy laden or challenging, or you're spending your time thinking about like schools that aren't really doing such a great job with kids right now. And that's really disheartening. And so how do you kind of find your light and, and chase it and spend your time on it and, and use that to kind of drive you? Um, yeah. And build a strategy around it. Like, I mean, what else is school improvement other than figuring out how kids can learn more? You know, it mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. like getting very, very clear on what is the problem your job is trying to solve. What is the problem you are trying to solve in your job that is motivating to you? And that mm -hmm. and you hear this in how I talk. I think about problems and I think about how to solve them. That is what drives me. Yes. Um, and defining that problem at a kid level is the thing that helps me stay focused. Totally. Totally. Um, you also are very good at solving problems like where's the best place for us to eat dinner tonight? And sometimes <laughs> <laughs> I get it right. Sometimes I don't. <laughs> you right a whole lot, my friend, uh, among among also helping kids learn to read and write. All right. So let's uh, start to move into our lightning round, which is just where asking different leaders for recommendations that they may have. So I would love to hear a book that's meant a lot to you professionally that you'd recommend. Yeah, I don't know that it means a lot to me, but it's a helpful book. It is okay. helping me. Um, it's called The One Minute Manager. Oh, yes. I love The One Minute Manager. Yes. <laughs> I think it's great. It's very clarifying. It helps me understand sort of like how do I need to manage individuals and groups? It's been great. I recommend it to people all the time. Yes. And it's great. It's like an easy read. It's a little bit goofy in its tone, but it gets the, gets the point across. And there's like a bajillion versions of it, right? Yeah. <laughs> the one minute manager on the road, the one minute manager in the yeah. office, right? I'm sure there's like a one minute manager in a pandemic now, but yeah, it's a good one. That's, I feel yeah, like it's. People, yeah, people always ask, like, how do I be a better manager? I'm like, I, I don't know. Don't read all the complicated books, but here's one that's pretty simple and direct. And yes, uh, yes, totally. Totally. I think that's really good. Excellent. Is there another resource that's been impactful for you, like a newsletter, podcast, websites? Um, there's like, you know, I've been talking a lot about systems and how systems work and sort of what the focus of systems needs to be. You know, there's a guy, Mark Tucker, he is the founder of the National Center for Education and the Economy. Um, and he's an economist and, um, he writes every so often, he has a blog, he writes every so often about why systems work and why they don't work and comparing the American education system to other countries. Um, oh, I just find his writing to have really resonated with us and how we governed um, in Louisiana. And uh, I find, I believe that what he 
has written has sort of inspired how we worked as well. So anyway, I like reading Mark Tucker whenever he writes. Excellent. Oh, I'm excited to check that out. Um, I have never, I don't really read many economists, so. As a reading teacher, as a former reading teacher, it's always good, right, to think about that. How about some mentors that you know personally who've been a lot to you? You mentioned John earlier. I would imagine he's yeah. one. You guys worked together for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I think all of my friends are in some ways mentors to me. I would consider you a mentor. I think I seek advice from you and um, am inspired by the work that you do to help individual people sort of realize their potential. Um, I think that, you know, I have a colleague named Shalini who is the CEO of a math curriculum company called Zern. I consider her to be a mentor. Mm -hmm. um, I think she's extremely savvy and uh, has strengths that I don't have and understands the world in different ways. And um, she's been a really good guide to me along the way as well. So that's awesome. Yeah. I think also it's so interesting that you mentioned like sometimes our mentors are so different than us and we can learn from those differences and from those similarities and apply them and yeah. sometimes see ourselves in them. And then, you know, my strong feelings about Bruce Springsteen and how much I learn from him every time I go to see a concert. It's basically like a leadership lesson waiting to happen. So <laughs> I consider him a mentor from afar and that I don't personally know him yet. Um, do you have any mentors from afar that have kind of helped shape your understanding of leadership or that you look to as a model as you, you know, go about your journey. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think mine is as like fun as yours. I mean, maybe she's fun. I don't really know. I don't know her, but <laughs> we've not been to a Springsteen concert together, which we should definitely put on our list. It is a lot of late 60 year old white dudes. <laughs> so it like sounds cooler than it is. That's um, well, I, you know, ever since I heard of this woman named Indra Nui, Mm. Oh, the Pepsi CEO, right? She's the CEO yes. of PepsiCo. She's since left. But, you know, as an immigrant to this country, I think, you know, you don't see people like you in positions of leadership. Yes. And she was the first person who I encountered that was someone who looked like me mm -hmm. in a major leadership role that was recognizable in our country. And um, I have always just been very grateful to her for her leadership and um, so humbled by you know, her representation in, in our American leader in leadership in America. And um, so, yeah, she's written a book. I'm about to read it. It's going to be great. All right. So Kunjan, this is where it's like so clear that we're friends. Cause I'm like, let me just tell you something I wouldn't say unless you're really friends in real life, which is, and I truly mean this sincerely. So that I'm sure that's great. And she has really been an interesting example and CEO, but also have you read Mindy Kaling's books? Because she is another okay. Indian immigrant woman. And <laughs> I think actually her parents may have been immigrants and she was born here. Um, but she has this new series out for Amazon Prime Reading that's like short. They're like 20 pages each. Oh. And they're so great, right? There's one on Hinduism. There's one on, I feel like, dating. There's one. On, they're just random and they're short reads. So anyway, a little funnier. Yeah, I'll check it out. I also like her TV shows. She's lovely. Her TV shows are fantastic. Yes, exactly. So this is the kind of thing that we like normally spend time talking about. Like we have never ever in our 20 years talked about any economists. I can say that with clarity. No, but like, we've not. I believe we have talked about Never Have I Ever Mindy Kaling's show before. And I find I love that show. <laughs> I love it. And then you're like so sad when it ends. You're like, but when's the next season coming out? <laughs> Is it because I identify with that awkward teenage girl? 100%. 100%. 100%. <laughs> I am 43 years old and I identify with her. <laughs> okay. And then last one, what is something you are loving in your life right now? So it can be just anything, but like, I feel like we always have things that like kind of just like delight us. And then during the pandemic, especially we've leaned in, what is something that you're loving right now? Yeah. I don't know if you know this about me either, Beth, but I, uh, when I was in college, I used to salsa dance 
Um, and I did a little bit of salsa in my early 20s. You forget our night out at the Green Dolphin in Chicago circa 2007. We went salsa dancing. Because it was like one of three times in my life I've salsa danced, so that's why I remember. It's so funny. Well, I've started again. It's been a long time. And it's really fun. I really love it. Oh, that's so great. I'm so excited for you. Thanks. Thanks. Oh, yay. Excellent. All right. Well, anything you want to say, I'm going to put up the website for Watershed Advisors, which I hope I got right um, here. Anything you want to say about um, the work you guys are doing before we wrap up? Yeah. Look, I think we are just working with government, the state governments, we're working governor's offices, SEAs, um, philanthropies, and um, we're working on a wide range of issues that impact kids from birth all the way to 22. So um, we're thinking about issues of early care. We're thinking about issues of... Um, K-12 instruction, about transitions to post-secondary, and we're thinking about the very sort of nerdy thing that I love, which is how do you use federal finance to drive real change in systems? Um, and, I mean, right? So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I really, again, I, it's the kind of thinking and work I got to do with the department, but now we're getting to do it with lots of different people, and um, I just really love it. So, thanks for letting me talk about it. Yeah, no, check it out. I'll, uh, people should check it out because it's super interesting. And I think that you guys work on so many different types of issues that all ultimately help people live happier, more fulfilling lives. And so I think that it's kind of exciting and interesting to approach it from a variety of angles. These, we do talk about this kind of stuff a lot, even if not economists over, over dinner. <laughs> well, so, and I would say that, you know, if you were listening today or catching the replay and, you know, you kind of enjoyed this banter, these kind of leadership lessons, you should definitely sign up for my newsletter, which is on my Facebook page, my LinkedIn page, and on my website, which is bethnapleton.com. Um, and if you're thinking about leading, if you lead a large system, if you want to lead a large system, if you are talking through some of those kinds of leadership transitions that Kunjan and I were talking about, and you think, gosh, I wonder if Beth's coaching or consulting could be helpful to me. My website is uh, here, the link to book a call with me. Let's set up a time to talk for 30 minutes and see if it could be a good match, because I think that there have been a lot of hard lessons that we've learned the hard way along our time. And honestly, one of the things I really enjoy is helping other people avoid learning those lessons, like learn those lessons like the shortcut way, right? So that they can, you know, not have to make some of those mistakes or sit in that inertia or be frustrated for so long because, you know, as we talked about, it's a really, really hard. I don't think it's ever been an easy time to be a leader, but in going into year three of a global pandemic, it is, it's real, real out there. And so how do leaders get the help that they need to make the changes that their organizations are meant to do? So Thank you, Kunjan, so much for joining me. I know this is not necessarily, you're not always like out in front, you know, razzle-dazzle talking, right? You are you are like the behind the scenes getting it done. And I really appreciate you taking the time to do this and to all of you for joining in and watching. Yeah, no, thanks for including me. It's been awesome. Good to see you, Beth. Always. It's always a pleasure. We didn't even get to talk about plants. So you'll leave that for the next time because I have some big projects there with you. Kunjan's been a plant mentor for me. All All right. See you soon.